0: So here we are, Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at our verses for today. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you that we can uh, gather here, that we can worship you, uh, we can study your word, we can fellowship with one another uh, in freedom. And it's a, it's a privilege that uh, many throughout history have had to do in secrecy. And here we are openly worshiping you, openly uh, studying your word, um, and we don't take this lightly. And so, Father, as we gather today, I pray that you would clear our minds of, of the stresses and strains and worries and concerns of the life that we have. And that we would be able to focus on your word. We ask that you would help us, Lord, as we study your scriptures, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text, that we would understand what happened in context And Lord, that our hearts would be softened, that we would um, allow you to speak to us through your word. Uh, We ask um, that you would help us to grow in our relationship with you. Uh, We ask that we as a church would be a light unto you, uh, to this world around us. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in our midst. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew 26, verse 17 Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said to them, or he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples as they were eating. He said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing he broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take Eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you, in my father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Father, we do thank you for your word. As we examine this passage, Father, we ask that you would guide us. May we draw closer to you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to do, we're doing communion again today. And that's a question that I'm often asked is like, hey, how often do we do communion here? I'm like, ah, kind of like once a month. And a lot of times it's if I, if I remember to do it once a month, you know, we make a little, we go through, we make notes, and it's like, oh, we'll do it once a month. The once a month is, is really for kind of like a checks and balances to ensure that we're doing it on a regular basis. The scripture says as often as you do this, um, I sort of feel like even though this was a Passover meal, I kind of get the impression that the trauma associated with the Lord's Supper and the next day my guess is every time those disciples had a meal for the rest of their life, every time a cracker was broken or they took a glass, a sip of wine that the images that they saw, it was doing communion for them. Um, I, it's okay to do communion every week. It's okay to do it once a month. It's, it's as often as you do it. I don't want to get wrapped around the axle. Um, we, we do it. We try to do it once a month. We... Uh, we try to do it when the text sort of percolates it to the surface. Certainly today it percolates it to the surface. Over the next few weeks, we're looking at the crucifixion story. So it's very likely we'll do the, commu- the, the communication card, not the communication card. We'll do the, uh, do the communication card if you haven't. Um, but we'll probably do the Lord's Supper from now until Easter a, a number of times because the crucifixion story is what we're studying. And so it makes sense to do it now. Um, today's section, this passage of Scripture, uh, it would be very easy for us to sort of cut what we're doing today and get it in our minds that we're, we're just sort of inserting a special communion service, sort of divorced from the context of the situation that's at hand. And so we need to make sure that as we look at the story today, as we continue to go through this story, um, to to sort of realize the context. So we look at this story and we naturally think, oh, what they did that night was the Lord's Supper. And if you guys could hear into my brain, I, I have a debate with myself that's go, going. Like I argue back and forth and I, I, I talk back to myself and I say, ah, but what about this point? And so it is, this is the Lord's Supper. But the reality of what's happening in today's story in the context, what we're doing is we're celebrating the Passover meal. Um, the Passover meal ultimately became the Lord's Supper. And the Lord Samper actually looks forward to the the marriage feast. This was a critically important night. Um, Passover was something that every Jewish family would do still to this day. Um, I believe that this night as they're celebrating the Passover meal, I believe that Jesus is giving the disciples sort of a, a framework or schematic to help them understand the things that were about to happen, um, this meal would guide their lives. When you compare the gospel of John, so Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels. They, they follow a similar sort of order. And then you have the gospel of John, which is sort of, written differently than the others. It, it, it's it's not like the synoptics. So the synoptics, that word, um, are similar. But then you look at the gospel of John who wrote his letter a good 50 years after the events. Everybody had been basically murdered for their testimony of Christ by the time John wrote the gospel of John. At the time of John's writing, John is now an old man. He's the only living apostle. And when he writes his testimony of the gospel of John, his gospel, his Testament of Christ, there are 21 chapters. A quarter of his book is devoted to the Lord's supper. John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. So it's almost a quarter because there's 21 chapters. So this night had a profound impact in all of their lives this this dinner, this Lord's Supper that we participate in, it's a reminder of the greatest event in human history. There, there is believer, non-believer. I don't care who you are. There is no denying that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ transformed human history. It's a great reminder. Of our salvation that is by grace alone through faith. It's a gift of God. In its simplest form, the Lord's Supper taking communion. It's a picture of the gospel. The gospel is simple. The gospel is that Jesus was executed on the cross according to scripture for your sins, for our sins, for my sins. That he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. That's the gospel. You receive the gospel into your life simply by believing. And when you when you believe, Ephesians 1.13 tells us that we're sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption, the future meal. Which Jesus talks about at the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, as we take the Lord's Supper, it causes us to look backward. It causes us, it should cause us to... Um, really it should cause us to look backward, not just to the cross, but I would go back to the Passover because really we are in part celebrating the Passover when we take communion. And the similarity between the Passover and the Lord's Supper is it deals with God's redemptive plan with humanity over the course of history. Jesus becomes the Passover lamb at the cross, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So we look backward, we look inward, we recognize our need for a savior, and then we look forward to this future that we have with Him. And so let's look at the passage here. The very first verse, we see the um, in verse 17. We learn now it was the first day of unleavened bread. The disciples came to Jesus and asked. So this is the night which He's betrayed. Um, there's speculation over what day of the week it is. I'm going to sort of um, I'm going to kind of leave that for you guys to study on your own. I don't think it's really, uh, that important which day he was actually crucified on. Um, although I have strong feelings about it, but that's besides the point. <laughs> and so, um, so it's the first day of unleavened bread. The Passover was referred to as the, the, uh, un, the, the unleavened bread, the, the seven days where leaven was removed out of their homes, um, it represented sin and on the the last day they would start they would celebrate the passover celebration they knew that they were in the midst of the passover jerusalem had swelled this really this sleepy town had swelled to upwards of 2.5 million people had descended upon to celebrate the passover Um, huge huge crowds The disciples looked to Jesus, understanding that it's a Passover. They are all Jewish men. They knew there were obligations. It was time for them to celebrate the Passover. But in order to do this, they needed a place to celebrate it. There were things that needed to get done on this day. And so they asked Jesus, verse 17, where do you want us to prepare for you the Passover? Where do you want this to take place, Jesus? Um, what we know about Passover is in Exodus 12. If, you, if you're if you studious, I'm going to reference it later. We're actually going to go there and read some. Um, but in Exodus chapter 12, as the Passover story is unfolding, the Israelites are in captivity in Egypt. And as they're there, Moses is pleading with the Pharaoh to be released from captivity. Um, the, the Israelite people had swelled. They just wanted to leave. They wanted to get to their land. Pharaoh sort of, he was like a yo-yo. He he, you know, he said, oh, I'll let you go. But then he changed his mind and God hardened his heart. And, and there's a series of plagues that occurs until the big plague when the angel of the Lord would pass over the death angel and take the firstborn of the son. If you wanted to avoid losing your firstborn son, what you would do is you would slaughter a lamb. You would take his blood. You take the the little twig, and you'd, you'd rub the blood up on the doorpost. And if the angel saw that, he would pass over. It was a, a picture of faith. It was a foreshadowing of the ultimate lamb, Christ, the Messiah, who would come. The lamb would be slaughtered. It would be eaten with a meal. As this happens, the instructions found in uh, Exodus 12, verses 14 through 27 are, are given. There was a procedure. They would give thanks to God. They would reflect on what God had done. It was something that would go on for generation after generation. Um, The modern Seder, the modern uh, Passover feast, we don't know. Many will say that this goes back to the night of Jesus. We really don't know. The earliest recordings of the the Passover meal that we know today go back to about AD 200. So it's very possible that, that, that it happened, that there would be a meal um, there would be four glasses of wine. Um, the, the, the third glass that we think is the one that Jesus would have used, um, to say that this is my blood that has been given for you. Um, in the text there, uh, in Exodus, what we do know is that they were to give thanks to God. They were to, to, they would worship, they would sing the Hallel songs, which are Psalms 113 to 118, um. They would tell the story, they would reminisce, they would give thanks to God. We're told in the passage um, that, that Larry would say, what does this mean? Oh, I mean, the child would ask, what does this all mean? You know, my opportunity to make fun of Larry. It's, a, it's really a beautiful family picture that, that even today, the youngest child present, as they're going through all of the, the ritual, is to ask mom and dad, why are we doing this? And then the dad would be able to respond to tell about God's redemption, his, his redeeming hand over his people over the years. It's beautiful. It, almost to me, when we celebrate communion, we have church and the child cries and makes a fuss. You know, it's easy to get all huffy puffy like, oh, we can't hear. But that's, that's supposed to be. It's biblical to have noises and little kids make it. It's, it's, it's generational. This isn't a a college classroom where we need total silence so we can focus. Like we want people to focus, but if a kid makes a noise, so be it. No big deal. It's about the family of God. We want to express to the children. And so in this story of the Passover, it says that when the young ones ask, you tell them about God. You worship him. And the whole Passover ends with them worshiping the creator. It's beautiful. And so this is what they're doing that night. When they say we need to prepare a place that the town's at its capacity, where, where, where are we to go to find space? So Jesus is going to give them instructions. He says, you need to go into town. There's going to be a guy there. When you see the guy, you tell him, hey, the my, Messiah says his time's here. He's going to be celebrating at your house. Make, make some space available. Uh, apparently, there was um, no problem with this. But let me just sort of, let's get back to the text. So here we are, verse um, 18. And he said, Jesus responds to them. You go to the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says. So in the other gospels, we learn that Jesus says there's going to be a man there. He'll be carrying water. This would be unusual because the women carried the water. He says, when you go into town in the midst of this 2.5 million people, you're going to see a man walking through the streets and he'll be carrying water. You'll go up to him and you say this to him my time is near. Now this word time is interesting. It's not the word chronos that we get clock from that measures time sort of, um, you know, from its church started at 930. I know I have until about noon, right? No, 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 11, the new service. There's a certain time I have to stop. I see chronos back there. I know that there, that I'm, I'm bound by the time. But this is the word kairos, which deals with like an appointed time, a season that there are There are opportunities that that pass that can only happen in this window. I sort of think of it as sort of like a, a river flowing with apples and you're bobbing for apples and that apple comes by. You only have that moment when you can reach down and grab the apple or it's gone. And so Jesus saying, my time is here. The window has come. Human history is about to be transformed. Redemption is going to happen in a way that it's never, ever happened ever before. And so you go to this man and you tell him that the Lord says, my time has come and I'm to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now the disciples apparently had no problem with this. Just a few days earlier when Jesus directed them to the colt, remember he said, go get, go find a colt, And if the owner has any problems with it, you just tell him that the Lord says he needs it and you guys can return it when I'm done with it. And so it's like, oh, okay. So now the disciples have been through this with Jesus. They've they're walking by faith. To some extent, imagine them going into town. Oh man, there's so many people here. How are we going to see this guy? I, mean, I don't know who one of them. Is. Oh, there there goes a the guy with water. Let's go over and knock on the guy. Hey, uh, the Lord says we're going to celebrate the Passover at your house. His time has come. Oh yeah, I got a place upstairs. And the guy gets everything situated. He he prepared this space for him. He kept all of the distractions away to include the servant that would have been provided by the house owner, which in John's telling, we know the story. They go there. They all go in. Nobody had washed their feet. The reason nobody washed their feet because the house servant isn't there. So somebody should have just taken charge and washed the feet. But they're all arguing about who the greatest is going to be in Jesus. I just imagine him banging his head. Guys, you've been with me three years and you haven't began to understand the message of if you want to be great, you need to serve. Why? I'm just going to wash your feet. But Peter, James, and John, they went out early in the day. They got their lamb. They slaughtered the lamb. They prepared the meat. They got all of the herbs. They got everything that they needed. They have the room set up. So that by the time that we come to verse 20, a whole lot has happened. When the evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. Now, I couldn't find a picture of this event on Google. So I found a drawing it's the best one i could find although i only count 11 guys so hopefully somebody can count there's a, maybe the 12th guy took the picture i don't know or drew the picture <laughs> there's no picture of it the reason i use this image is to help us to get the mind in our minds what was happening there's there's that real famous picture where there's like a very like uh, CEO type table where they're all in their chairs with fork and knives and sort of thing. That's not how they were sitting. There were no chairs. They, they would have been sitting on the ground. They would have been on their side, leaning into the meal. The, the, the meal was not given how I like to eat a meal. I like to eat a meal with the food goes boom. Let's get it in our goal to get it down. Let's move on with our day. The military corrupted me forever. And, uh, but this was a meal that would have taken a long time. It was a time to to reflect on God. It would take hours and so now we're in this story, the Passover meal has begun. They're reclining at the table, sort of like the image behind us. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. I remember last week, we we, we we read about the story that Matthew had, had sort of pieced together these two stories that don't fit chronologically together. He'd taken... Um, the story of Mary busting the jar of perfume, which happened on Saturday over Jesus's head. It went all over his body, down to his feet. And they, he, Matthew merges that story with the betrayal story of Judas going to the leaders and saying, How much? What will you give me to betray Jesus? I'm game. So at this point in the story, Judas, I don't know if he's like, you know, <laughs> Have you guys ever had to carry a bunch of change in your pocket or a bunch of, and you're trying to be quiet where you're like, clink, 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 clink. I don't know if he's like at the dinner, trying to stay really, like really walking funny, like trying to hide the money in his pocket or wherever he was keeping it. But he already had that 30 pieces of silver is on him. And Jesus starts saying, one of you is going to betray me. In verse 22, being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, "Surely not I, Lord!" So the eleven are horrified. They're, they're in deep grief. Like, how could this be? Peter says, "Lord, I'll never betray you. I'll go to my like again. I'll go to my death." And Jesus, in other accounts, you know, you're gonna you're gonna deny me three times before the crow before the rooster crows, not the crow crows, the rooster crows. They're they're I'm imagining myself as a young man. There was a story in the Navy when I was down the weight room taking a nap. And I get this over the loudspeaker, this skipper says, hey, Seaman Hansen, come to my office right now. And I'm like making my way up to the office going, what did I do? Like what?" And I couldn't think of anything I'd done wrong. But that didn't mean I was innocent. I wasn't saying I was innocent. I was just saying I couldn't remember what I had done that would have gotten me into this trouble. So I went up there as a guilty man. And I just remember going, Yes, sir, how can I help you? And I remember him saying, Hey, uh, why in the world is Admiral so and so calling me and having Seaman Hansen call him back at his convenience? And it was my dad's old buddy was retiring, so he called the skipper. It got me in so much trouble, but I didn't do anything. But that feeling of walking to his office, I think, was similar to these guys. One of you is going to betray me. And I'm like, No, no, that's not me. Did I do something? I don't. Like they're racking through their brains trying to remember. How this would happen, but then there's Judas. And Judas knew he had the change. He had already he had already betrayed Jesus, and now he's just waiting for the moment of opportunity to make it happen. And they're be, they're deeply grieved. Verse twenty two. They began to say to him, "Surely not, I, Lord." And Jesus answered, "He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is one." is the one who will betray me. And now it's fascinating. Verse 24, notice this. Jesus in verse 24, he's going to say that this betrayal was prophesied. This was a part of God's plan. God had sort of initiated this. Verse 24, the son of man is to go just as it is written of him. There's prophecy about this. However, even though that there's prophecy about this, he makes it clear that Judas is still culpable for his sin. That just because it's prophesied and just because Judas was used. That doesn't mean that Judas is off the hook. He says, but woe to that man whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. A few years ago, I was on a little kick trying to figure out if there was a way that we'd see Judas in heaven. I remember kind of scouring through the story and I'm like, I really like, maybe there's something that indicates that when he committed suicide, that there was repentance on his part. But the reality is as I go through the scriptures, the scriptures makes it very clear that Judas never repented. There was no sign of remorse. However, I do believe if he did, God would have forgiven him. God's Jesus's payment on the cross would have been sufficient for Judas. Had Judas responded but there's no evidence that he does. And Judas, verse 25, who was betraying him said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. You, 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 you can't be talking about me. Uh, this, I have a good story about these 30 pieces of coin, <laughs> these 30 pieces of silver. Certainly it can't be me. And Jesus basically responds is, you're the one who said it. It's you who said that you betrayed me. And there's this acknowledgement that there was this betrayal. As you look through the the story of the cross. Throughout the New Testament. As the story about the cross starts being unfolded. As the story is told. The the betrayal is intricately woven into the story. You You can't remove it from the story. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul was not present for this. Paul was on the bad team during the crucifixion. Paul was not a team player for many years to come. Paul, when he tells the story of the crucifixion, he says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, 23, for I received from the Lord, that would I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, like he kicks off the crucifixion story with the betrayal. And I can't help but to imagine that, that the betrayal of Judas, one of the 12, was almost one of the first lashes that Jesus received as he was heading to the cross. That this pain and this sorrow, the sorrow, the burden of sin that was being placed upon him. There's, there's no greater agony than betrayal. And then the closer that that loved one is to you, the more severe, severe the feeling of anguish of that betrayal and so here Jesus is being betrayed by the one who loves him. As we look at the stories that develops, we'll see that he, he, he betrays him with a kiss, calling him my Lord. It's powerful. And so then we come to verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And so when we look at this in our minds, I know we jump. This is, he's doing the Lord's Supper. We know this is communion. In the context, what he's doing is he's doing the Passover meal. We have to get the Jewishness in our brains, guys. This is a Jewish meal. This is the Jewish Passover. This is a memorial service. This is symbolic for them. For those of you that actually held your place in... Exodus chapter 12, you can go back there. Or if you didn't, you can go there. Or if you just don't want to, you don't have to. Um, Exodus chapter 12. As this is being explained in the midst of the story, the context of Exodus, where we find ourselves, the plagues are unfolding. The, the, big, the big plague is about to happen. The, the Passover one is about to occur. Instructions have been given. Verse 13, Exodus twelve thirteen: the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you will live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That's saying what will happen, what's about to happen to them. Now, verse 14 and down to verse about 27, this is where the instructions for the Passover meal happen. Look at verse 14. Now, this day will be a memorial to you. That following the event, they were supposed to remember what God had done in their lives as a nation. Now this day will be a memorial to you. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout all your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. That this is one of the ordinances that the people of Israel were to do year after year after year after year. If you follow the story down, verse 24 says, and you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. Down to verse 26. And when your children say to you, what does this mean to you? This is a beautiful picture that God has given as a teaching object to remind the people of God's faithfulness in the story of redemption. And so when we fast forward to Matthew 26, you can go back there now. And so when Jesus is holding up the cracker, he's holding up the Passover meal. When he's holding up the wine, he's holding up the symbol of the Passover. They were memorializing through symbols what God had done, so they never forgot God's hand in redemption. I'm probably straining this point, being raised as a Catholic, that when I went through my first communion and I love my Catholic brothers and said, like, I'm not trying to, ba- like I'm my struggle being raised in the Catholic church is that I was told because of this passage where that he uses the is that what this meant is that when he held up that cracker, that literally became his body and the juice literally became the juice and a really big word that I'm not, I don't mean there's no bother saying it, but, but there's a belief that the, the elements, when you take communion, it literally changes to the actual body and blood of Christ today, that if we were to take it, that's what they would say. And where they point is to this passage, because it says, Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. The problem with that is the context. This isn't a new meal. This is the Passover meal. This is a meal that is a memorial that they were doing in remembrance of the Passover back in Egypt. Now, when Jesus takes the bread and he takes the juice, what he's doing that now is he's transforming the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. He's saying this bread and this juice, which you celebrate to memorialize the Passover, is now becoming symbolic of what's going to happen in the next 24 hours. It's powerful. Jesus didn't. He's not in this moment celebrating the Passover meal. He is telling them that he is the Passover lamb. John the Baptist in the opening pages of the gospel of John, he's baptizing people in the Jordan. Jesus walks up on scene. And what does John say to him in John 1 29? John the Baptist says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Jesus's ministry began by the announcement that he is the Passover lamb. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, when he refers back to Christ, he says, for Christ is our Passover sacrificed. So on this night, as they're slaughtering the lambs, as they're going through the motions of celebrating the Passover meal, Jesus is saying, I'm the Passover. I am the ultimate lamb that is going to be given as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. We can spend a lot of time debating Christ's rule and the communion that we celebrate. But as one author wrote recently in a a magazine, he said, in the distracted digital age, it may be the case that the classical debates about the presence of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper have been inverted. The question with which we may have to wrestle is not in what in what way is the Lord present in the supper? Instead, the question is, in what way are we present in the Lord's supper? Because there's one line that should that should just grabs, just stop our hearts cold, dead in the water. That we need to wrestle with this one phrase, verse 28: "For this is my blood of the covenant. This is it, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. That Christ's blood." was spilt because of my sins, because of your sins, because of our sins, because of the sins of all of the world, past, present, and future. And so when we come to this passage, when we take the Lord's Supper and we're faced with the reality that Christ died for us, like, let us not turn communion into an arguing point. We're faced with the reality that our sin caused this. And if the longer you walk with Christ and the, the more you grow in your relationship with him, the more controlled you are by the spirit. Your sins might not be big sins today, but the little sins become big sins. And as we're faced with communion, our, we should weep bitterly over our sin, recognizing what Christ went through on our behalf. I found an article about an old Hebrew teacher. I'm going to read the article Power brought me to tears. So the story goes, many years ago, an old doctor John Duncan taught Hebrew in Edinburgh long ago. He was sitting one day at church preparing himself for the Lord's supper, and he was feeling so personally unworthy that when the elements came around, he felt like he couldn't take them. He allowed the bread and the wine to pass. As he was sitting there feeling miserable, a loser, completely unworthy. Have you guys ever been there? I know I have. Where you just feel so unworthy to receive the gift that Christ has given to each one of us. As he's beating himself up. This is a Hebrew teacher for crying out loud. That's not an easy language to learn. Like like in my mind, he's like, man, you've done a lot, brother. Why are you beating yourself up? He noticed a girl in the congregation who, when the bread and the wine came around, also allowed them to pass. And then she broke down into tears. That sight seemed to bring back the old saint to the truth he'd forgotten. And in a carrying whisper that could be heard across the church, he was heard to say, take it, Lassie, take it. And then he himself partaked. Or partook in communion that day. It's a powerful story. It's a reminder to us that communion, the Lord's Supper, is for sinners. If you're a Christian, you're a saved sinner. If you're not a Christian, you're an unsaved sinner. The way you become a Christian is to respond to the gospel. You accept the gift and now you're saved, you're redeemed, you're, God looks at you through the blood of Christ. But when I was a saved sinner, I struggled for years. My whole life being a Navy SEAL was all about what you'd done. How many deployments have you done? How long have you been in the community? All of it could be taken away from you in a moment if you make one mistake. And so I came to Christianity like this. So I knew that Jesus forgave me my sins. That's good for him, but... I had a whole lot of mistakes and I wasn't going to let him let me off the hook that easily. And so I would sort of beat myself over the back over all the things I'd done in the past and the present. I knew I was unworthy. And so I wouldn't let myself get away with it. And I'm thankful for the people who poured into my life to help me to understand grace. You know, my wife was one of them. She, she helped like, I was trying to prove myself worthy to her dad, who's this pastor missionary, and I'm dating the pastor's daughter. And I was like a total heathen Navy SEAL that had come to Christ. And I thought I was trying to like put on this external show and to see like, you know, God loves you. He paid it all. It was so hard for me to to, to truly understand that Jesus on the cross paid it all for me. I thought maybe in the, how I was living my life is that he paid eighty percent, and I had this 20 percent, the part that I could do, that was my obligation to make the to bridge the gap that I could handle. But really, that's shameful because it showed it exposed, that I didn't understand how holy God was, nor did I understand how great a sinner I was. And so there's something totally humbling when you come to communion. And you weep bitterly at your sin. You repent of your sin. But then you look upward at Christ. And we're told in 1 John 1, 1.9 that as we confess our sin, he is faithful to cleanse us, to make us righteous. The elements point to Christ's work on the cross. They don't point to my works. My works are useless. Your works are useless. But his work, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave are totally sufficient for you. And so then we're told, as he says this, he continues, and he says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. This story always reminds me of a trip to Israel one of the things being a pastor has always like, it's changed me. I realize that people at times act differently around me, which I don't understand. And so on one of the early trips to Israel, we were at the, the dinner hall and everybody started looking at me. And so I'm kind of like, I have some of my teeth. Like, uh, like, what is it? Like, I'm like, what's going on? Like, why are you guys all looking at me? And finally, one of them had the courage to lean over to me and said, Hey, Gunner. Um, he said, pastor Gunner. Uh, at this hotel, there's complimentary wine. And um, we're kind of wondering if it's okay for us to have a glass of wine. I'm like, are you kidding me? Is this why everybody's looking at me? Because there's free wine and they want to know if they like can have a glass of wine. So, uh, so I look at her, I like kind of stand up. I'm like, guys, I don't care if you have a glass of wine. You paid about $5,000 to come to Israel. You're at a, like a five-star hotel We're studying the things of Jesus. There's free wine. Go have yourself a glass of wine if you want a glass of wine. If you don't want a glass of wine, don't have a glass of wine. I have no problem with that. Now, if you guys are all staggering drunk because you've been doing like a keg stands and you missed the bus, then we will talk because the Bible talks about drunkenness. But if you want to have a glass of wine because you're at the Sea of Galilee where Jesus lived, go have a glass of wine. I get back to my food, half the table gets up, and they go get their wine. (laughs) And so every other trip, I have this speech with everybody. I'm like, guys, I know there's free wine. I don't care if you have a glass of wine. I'm not your mother. I'm not the spirit. I'm like, like, go have a glass of wine. And on this last trip, Michael Nichols and and Chris uh, Guess were at the table with me. Uh, Yeah, since I said their name. Michael was having a glass of wine. Chris was not having a glass of wine. I was drinking whatever. I was no wine, but I was drinking water. If I want a glass of wine, I could add a glass of wine, but I wasn't drinking a glass of wine. But I don't say that I have freedom in Christ to do that, but I wasn't. This is my legalistic side that God has been freeing me from. So I look at them. I'm like, hey, you want a picture of Michael to put on Facebook of you having a nice meal at the Sea of Galilee? And he's like, yeah, but I got to run it through my wife first. Like, what do you mean? And he's like, Well, we have some supporters that might be offended if I'm having a glass of wine. I'm like, Well, just tell them it's grape juice. You know, I'm I'm kind of stirring the pot with my two buddies, and and Chris is like, No, I just don't. I don't have a wine. It's no big deal. But it, it led to this very um, thoughtful conversation. And Michael Nichols said, Well, I used to not have a glass of wine with my meals, and and uh, he said, But then this passage at the Lord's Supper, it dawned on me that I was being pious. And I have no struggle with alcohol. I've never, like, nobody's, there's no alcoholism in my family. I've never struggled with it. But my arrogance told me that I was better than everybody else for not having a glass of wine. And it dawned me that Jesus, on the Lord's Supper, he looked at them and he said, this is my last glass of wine until this day at this marriage feast on that day, I'll have a glass of wine again. And he's like, it dawned on me that someday in my life, I'll be sitting at the banquet table with Jesus. And Jesus will be drinking a glass of wine. And I'll be saying, well, I'm too holy for that, Jesus. <laughs> and so he's like, through that, the Lord really like broke me. And this, you had to be there. We're planning another trip. So maybe we'll have the same thing happen up. Um, but it was really like the pitch, this image, that the Lord's Supper goes from looking back to the Passover It becomes the Lord's Supper, and then the Lord's Supper points us forward. It really is a beautiful thing that as we take the elements today, we look back. We reflect on ourselves. We confess our sins. We give thanks for what God has done in our lives. But it also should whet our appetites to this future banquet, this future day. Look, I'm not making this up, verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. This is a beautiful, wonderful thing that we're just sojourners in this life. We're just passing through. Uh, uh, This isn't as good as it gets. As good as it gets is coming. And so as we take communion, we're reminded of all the Christ has done on our behalf, on all that he's instituted that he's gone and he's prepared a place for us it's beautiful and so today as we take communion we're reminded as we celebrate the lord's supper that this really is a passover meal and in taking the passover we look back to the passover and why is it so important to look back there why is it so important to go all the way back to exodus one of the first couple books of the bible because what we see going all the way back there is we're reminded of God's faithfulness. We're reminded of God's love, his joy, his patience, his kindness towards us. And that from Genesis chapter 3, this redemptive plan has been set in motion. And so for, for centuries, the Passover meal was celebrated until this night, which the Lord was betrayed. And on that night, he lifted the cracker and the wine looking back to the Passover, and he says, I am the new Passover. Do this in remembrance of me. And as you do this, as you look inward, don't take your eyes off of me, not me, but Jesus, and remember that a day is coming when you'll have no more sin. You'll have no more sorrow. You'll be at the banquet table with me. It's wonderful. And if you're here today and you're not certain about where you stand with God. I need to assure you that your salvation is not based upon your works. Your salvation is based on what did you do with Jesus? Jesus came. He offered his life as a sacrifice for you. His death on the cross was totally and fully sufficient for your sins, for my sins, for all of our sins. It's received simply through belief. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 reads this in him. That's Christ. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that Jesus died, he was buried. He rose again. Having also believed that's what initiates your position to be moved from Adam and sin to new life in Christ. You were sealed in him with the holy spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. It's a down payment that the spirit of God has placed within us to assure us of our place with him with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We see that this future when we go be with Christ in heaven, this this we have our new bodies will be with them. And so I'm going to ask the guys to come forward. Um, We're going to pass out the elements. Communion is for those who have believed. And so as we take communion, they're going to pass it out. I'd ask you to hold on to it. As you're holding on to the elements, as some music is strummed up front here, I would ask you to ask God to sort of show you areas in your life that need confession. Maybe you need to receive Christ as your savior. And then we'll take the elements after we all receive them. So father, we do thank you for Christ's death, burial and resurrection. Father, we ask that you would help each one of us to understand what he did for us. Lord, free us from the bondage of thinking that it's about works that we need to work our way into heaven, that we need to work our way into favor with you. Father, help us to fully grasp that you love us, that you created us, that you've done everything. This is a unilateral action. You have done all so that we might have peace with you. And so, Father, I pray for those who have received salvation that are still under bondage by the lies of Satan, telling them that they're unworthy. We know we're unworthy. We thank you that this Lord's Supper reminds us that it's all about the work that Jesus did on our behalf. Father, as we take this time to reflect, I pray that you would show us, Lord, areas in our life that are holding us back from you. I pray that you would help us to confess our sins. I pray that you would help us to rejoice in the work that you did on the cross. I pray that you would bring to mind those that don't know you and that you would use us, Lord, as your ambassadors. We thank you, Father. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.